Having served in some kind of church ministry uh, since 1976, some of you are already working the math, I've been the recipient of all kinds of advice concerning how to make the church more effective, attractive, and successful. Does that surprise you? Uh, from, and they always start with this one, shorter sermons, not sure about that one, more contemporary music, less contemporary music, more hymns, um, more parking spaces, uh, friendlier greetings with an ample supply of breath mints. Um, and this one, I, I, when I heard about it, I just kind of had to pause on that one, and maybe you could affirm that. Attractive, good-smelling restrooms with attractive decors. <laughs> what do you think? Is that important for a church? Uh, not that I'm in favor of offensive greeters or smelly restrooms. I just had never thought that was that high on the list. In recent years, uh, even some critics of the church who are witnessing the increased violence and societal breakdown of our nation have voiced in editorials and in their social media concerns that what has bound us together as a nation, basically the heritage of a Judeo-Christian past, uh, and the suggested fall of church attendance in America may not be the best thing for our country. And they have also been offering their suggestions as to what church leaders should do better to, quote, attract a crowd. Uh, interestingly enough, even the Surgeon General of the United States highlighted what he called an epidemic of loneliness while overlooking the proven benefits of regular participation in worship and the life of a local church, issuing yet another series of government ideas and mandates to, quote, address this to which I was tempted to say, go back to church. You'll find a lot of folks here who love you and love Jesus, and that helps with loneliness. Well, I'm grateful that God has not left us without clear directions and priorities from his word for life and ministry in the local church, for without them, we could easily fall prey to the latest fads and ongoing pressure to conform to the spirit of this age or to, own, to our own spiritual peril. I say that not as a theorician, but as someone who just this last week, the last several weeks, have been working with churches in my role as a district superintendent, uh, regional superintendent for the Great Lakes District of the EV Free Church, as entire congregations are now leaving some denominations that have departed from biblical orthodoxy, and they are finding a home in the EV Free Church because we've committed to certain practices and principles and doctrines that we are not going to budge on, as unpopular as they may become. So that's, that's kind of been rattling around in my head. Just yesterday, just Friday, two of those churches were welcomed and officially welcomed into the EV Free Church, and they are rejoicing today that they found a fellowship of churches that believes the Bible, lifts up Christ, is going to stay on the main things, and pray that we will stay to that end. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful that two weeks ago, Pastor Scott launched this fall series in, first, in Paul's letter of 1 Timothy to his young pastoral apprentice, Timothy. And I just want to refresh your memory. Uh, for some of you who are note takers, I, I always use the back of my bulletin, see if I can fill up that back page with uh, notes, trying to keep up with Pastor Scott. I apologize, the version notes are not up yet. That is my fault. But I want you to know, hopefully, we'll get them up later this afternoon. So you're going to have to listen carefully and follow along and know if you miss something, it should come up later this afternoon. 
Here are some key points from Pastor Scott's message from 1 Timothy chapter 1. First, 1 Timothy is, is the Apostle Paul's manual for local churches written to his spiritual son and pastoral apprentice, Timothy, whom he left to pastor in the great city of Ephesus. Two things I want you to notice there. One, uh, Ephesus was not exactly a back hick town. That was the preeminent uh, Roman provincial capital on the edge of the Aegean Sea, on the western edge of what is now modern-day Turkey. It was a cosmopolitan city. It held the great temple to Diana or Artemis, of which the world thought it was just a wonder. And so if you want to talk about tough sledding doing a gospel ministry in a, in a community or in a city that has got all kinds of, quote, spiritual options. Young Timothy was left to do that with every confidence that Paul had that he would do well. And we're going to talk about why that is. Secondly, uh, Scott emphasized that the truth of God and sound doctrine doesn't change. And so you, there are times when you have to oppose people who are giving false doctrine or misleading teaching and in the great city of Ephesus, that was going on. And, and when, when we follow God's truth and obey it, it leads to a satisfying relationship with Christ that results in true joy in living. We talked about that a couple weeks ago and just reminded us, uh, doctrine is not uh, secondary, it is primary because Christians are called to walk in the truth that is found in Jesus and his word. When we deviate from that, we do so to our own peril. And that's why preachers preach and say, read your Bible, pray, go to Bible studies, attend worship services, because that's our life. That's God's communication means to all of us. Uh, thirdly, last week, while God is holy and upholds the righteous standard, he's also full of grace and mercy and delights to extend grace to the unlikely sinner of which Paul identified in verses 12 and 13 and 15. He says, I'm the, I was the worst sinner, and yet God saved me. And that motivated him, that grace just motivated him to keep serving the Lord with joy. So three of the character, you know, some of the characteristics of a healthy church are solid doctrine and a sense of grace permeating that fellowship. But today we pick up Paul's letter of instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I hope you've already opened your Bibles there or turned your electronic devices to because I'm going to want you to, to follow along with me carefully as we read it together. And I want you to pay attention to a word that a good Bible study uh, pattern is, what, look for repeated words in any passage, because that will give you a, a, a clue as to a key theme in that section. And you'll find in these uh, seven, uh, and then a little bit into verse eight, a word is repeated five times, and a, a similar word is repeated in verse eight that signals a key theme of Paul's instruction to us and uh, to Timothy and to all of us. See, sometimes we think, well, this, is only, this book is written only to preachers. I'm not interested. But let me just remind you that throughout our lives, uh, as we go through life, there will be times when we go to college and we're going to have to find a, a good local church. How do you know a good one? We're going to get married and maybe have a family and you'll get a career and a job somewhere and, and there are all these things that call themselves churches, but you have no idea what's a healthy one, what's one that's going to be solid for your biblical nourishment. So you need, all of us need to know this as well. So sound doctrine, filled with grace, but in this passage, uh, Paul is going to highlight two additional characteristics of a healthy church. So let's first 
Look at the Bible. Let's read it together. I'll read it out loud. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures and see if you can find that word that's repeated five times. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and is, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we'll, we'll leave the rest of this section, thankfully, to Pastor Scott when he returns. For those of you who have read ahead, you'll know why I'm relieved he gave me the first part of chapter 2. See, Paul continues his divine instructions for church life to Timothy. And uh, he does so in a manner that he highlights uh, what, what kind of thought, or did you catch the, five, the word that's repeated five times? Any, anybody want to be daring enough to speak up in church? Prayer is, is important. All. All is repeated five times here. And then if you add every in verse 8, there is an emphasis on a big, big bigness. Uh, praying for all kinds of people, knowing that God's uh, saving grace is available to all people. We're going to talk about that and unpack that idea. So if you were kind of walking through these uh, eight verses, here's how I see the three movements of this passage. Verses 1 and 2 and then verse 8, you have Paul's call to make prayer a broad and ongoing priority in the local church. And we'll, we'll unpack that in a moment. Uh, then he moves into verses 3 through 6, the biblical basis for prayer as we clearly understand the specifics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about just belief in God. We're going well beyond that. Verse 7, you, hear, you read of Paul's, again, commitment to be a communicator of this life-changing gospel. It had changed his life. He wanted to pass it on to as many as he could. He was apprenticing Timothy as part of that. And so Paul's desire is he's, his continued instructions for life and church in the local church to young Timothy. He adds two additional characteristics of healthy churches. And you need to know them so that wherever you go, when you attend and you get involved, you'll say, yep, we're good. We're good here. Or mm, something's off here. And, and you need to know there is no, there's no penalty for saying, hmm, I need to investigate this a little further. Because, sad to say, there are, there are places with the label church that is not a place you should stay at. Did, you, did I just say that? <laughs> I did, sadly, uh, to my shame and to my sadness. So the first characteristic that Paul emphasizes is not a surprise. You've already identified it. The priority, the practice, and the focus of prayer in the local church, verses 1 through 3 and verse 8. So first, the priority of prayer. Paul begins chapter 2, and notice, remember, 
2 is not in the original text. So he's flowing out of this concern that Timothy keep the charge that he's been given him. He cites these two people who had shipwrecked his faith, and he's concerned about that. But then he says, but first of all, then, I urge that. And then he goes on to label a number of types of prayer. But the priority is clearly, Paul notes that prayer is to be a priority of first place in the local church. Why? Because what happens in a local church is not just a matter of human effort, but we are partnering with Almighty God in the work of sharing the gospel and discipling disciples to do, uh, to do a life-changing work of obedience to his word and to the Holy Spirit, all for his glory. Interestingly enough, in the end of one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about who, and now into the, you know, he talks about God being uh, above and beyond all that we ask or think. And then he says, to him be the glory in the church and in all ages. And I've often found myself saying, Lord, do you know what goes on in local churches sometimes? And yet he said, this is the place where I want to change people's lives and I want people to know God is in our midst. He's changing people for good. We are co-laborers with Christ, Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, he writes, I planted, I did my work. Apollos, another prophet, came and watered that work. But it's God who gives the growth, for we are God's fellow workers. I want you to know that every pastor who has really thought this through recognizes that we can do all kinds of things and preach and teach and, and do programs and that. But unless the Spirit of God is at work talking to you, even in moments like this, uh, we realize that we're powerless to change a person's life. That's God's work. But the amazing thing is, he does. He encourages us. And I hope he encourages you as you find him speaking to you through his word and you find him challenging the way you're living and you're saying, I, I've got to make a change and I'm not sure I want that. And see, that's why prayer is one of Crossroads' core values and commitments. We have on our journey wheel and out in our, in our staff area our statement of core values, and, and the second one is this, prayer. We value prayer as a priority throughout all ministry and leadership endeavors. Where does this priority show up at Crossroads? Frankly, almost everywhere. In almost everything we do, it's offered, we have prayer, we offer for people to pray on our church website. I was just kind of ticking things off. We have a prayer room in the worship center when it's not used for storage, and, and that's a good place to pray. It precedes almost every meeting and event here at Crossroads. Our men's uh, noontime prayer gathering every other week here, we're praying. Our prayer warriors ministry, our biblical soul care ministry, our global outreach team prays every month by name for our missionaries, and you do as well in so many venues. But Paul calls us to use all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people and to make that a priority. He says, I urge you, Timothy, don't miss this. If you think you can somehow work the circumstances or be clever enough to know that you need more parking spaces or sweet-smelling bathrooms to make your church grow, you are missing the point. This is a spiritual work. We are co-laborers with Jesus, and he's the one that creates the growth. Interestingly enough, though, he also calls us to the practice of prayer, different terms that he kind of heaps on one another in this set, latter part of verse 1. Take a look. He says, first, I, 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 I ask that you have supplications, which are prayers from a sense of need. Now, some of, those, some of us are real familiar with that one. 
That's the one, even as a child up to adulthood, where I say, God, help. <laughs> There's a need here. And all of us know that in the life of a local church, there are things going on that we're saying, oh, God, help. Oh, God, I, am, I can't do that. I have a profound sense of need. And this is something I can't solve. There's not enough wisdom. There's not enough doctors. There's not enough things going on for this to change apart from your divine intervention. The amazing thing is many times in response to prayer, God does respond and receives the glory. Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes the answer is no. And the question is, are we going to trust him through those times? So supplications or requests. A second term he uses is the general word for prayers. So he says supplications, prayers, and then intercessions or petitions on behalf of others. And uh, thanksgivings. Philippians 4, 6 reminds us, in everything by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It recognizes God's past answers to prayer and a confidence that he wants to respond. He is not unwilling to respond. He is not an unloving father. He says, I want to give good gifts to my children. But there are times you have to trust me, as Jesus did. Lord, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And that's hard. When you desperately want something to happen the way you want it to happen. And because we're made in the image of God and desire to relate to our creator, that communication between us and God is called prayer. From the littlest years of children, uh, our children and our grandchildren. And we teach them to pray at bedtime. We teach them to pray at mealtimes. We teach them that even though we can't see God, he is there because we can see evidences of his hands in creation and his working in our lives. And so we help them understand that prayer is real. And so sometimes it's a childlike prayer experience. Sometimes we learn from one another, listening to each other pray. Sometimes uh, we see things like a few years back, the Kendrick movie, War Room, where that African-American lady, she had that like walk-in closet with all kinds of paper uh, pasted to the wall. Those were her prayer things. And she'd get in there, and she'd be praying, and she'd get excited and do a jig around the kitchen. And, but that's a woman who understood something of what the joy of communicating with God in prayer and making a difference. It's kind of interesting because uh, there are many who have oftentimes uh, thought, well, yeah, that's good, but. And in fact, we've, in recent days, we've had people criticize uh, Christians when, they, when a terrible thing happens and we say our prayers are, are with them. Oh, we need more than prayer. Well, yeah, that may be true, but that's where we ought to begin, crying out to God, saying, Lord, this shouldn't have happened. God, help it not to happen again. Help it not to happen in our community and be at work in our, in our midst. I love a few years back, uh, God graciously gave me the opportunity in my first month as a young, fledging pastor in Spokane, Washington, at the Free Church there, that I came in August of, of 1982, or, or no, actually earlier, 1978. And uh, when I got there, the week after I arrived, guess who came to town? Billy Graham and the Inland Empire Billy Graham Crusade, just across the street from our church. Man, talk about a, a jump start for a ministry. That was a crazy week. Uh, our, our church was taken over for the processing of the decision cards. God did an amazing work there. But you know what was most interesting? I expected to go across the street and attend the meetings and that Billy Graham 
would have this spellbinding, powerful, you know, charismatic sermon. And I listened to him, and he said, now God may be speaking to you. And if he does, you come on down. And there will be counselors that will meet you and give you some literature. You know, he would always talk about literature. And you know what happened? They would come. And I'm sitting there looking around. That would have rated a B-plus sermon in, in a, a, a preaching lab at seminary. But God's Spirit was taking those simple, clear proclamations of the gospel and penetrating hearts. So it's not the wisdom and skill of Billy Graham. In fact, that was uh, the funny thing that week that he was there. He, uh, he met with reporters, as he often does, to publicize the meetings. And he said, I'm going to tell you the secret of my uh, success in, in crusades. And they, they all got their, at this point, it was still paper and tablets here. <clears throat> uh, number one, prayer. Write that down. Number two, prayer. <laughs> number three, prayer. He basically said, unless God works in response to prayer, this is not going to work. I'm going to do everything I can to do things with integrity and honesty. We're going to end the era of, of televangelists or things that are corrupt. But unless God works, we're, we're, we're sunk without his intervention and his work. That's why you see people like that. You see children praying. You, see, you learn to pray. You, you read some of the Apostle Paul's prayers in Ephesians and Colossians, where he oftentimes is praying for the other Christians. Uh, one of the ones you may have heard of of a past era was George Mueller, a great 18th, 19th century pastor. He cared for 10,000 orphans and started 117 schools. And he was a man who learned how to persevere night and day in prayer because he had no consistent means of support to feed all these kids. Of the 50,000 answers to prayer that he cataloged in his lifetime, just 5,000 came instantly on the day he asked for them. So 90% of his prayer requests didn't happen right away. And yet, he said, let's keep praying. Let's persevere and pray. There was one man for whom Mueller consistently prayed and waited for 63 years to surrender his life to Christ, but he finally did. And he said, don't let yesterday's seeming unanswered prayers stop you from praying in faith today. See, there's probably not a person in this room who doesn't have a family member, a classmate, a relative, a neighbor, a coworker, who, as best you can tell, and you're not judging, um, you would probably guess that they're not uh, in a relationship with Christ. Those are the folks we got to keep praying for. He says, pray for all kinds of people. And that's the next thing. Not only are we to uh, make it a priority and a practice, but the scope of prayer is interesting in the latter part of verse 1 and B in verse 2. He says, pray for everyone. That's a lot of people. Better get a notebook. Better get something bigger to write it all in. And then when he kind of throws a twist that for us and for them was very challenging. He said, I want you to pray for rulers and governing authorities that they might rule over an orderly society in which the gospel will be allowed to continue to advance. Now, that's a stretch. It was a stretch for them because you know who the emperor was then? Nero. You ever heard of him? Not a nice guy. He was crazy, and he did crazy things and terrible things to Christians. And yet, Paul is saying to Timothy, in Ephesus, a major Roman city, I want you to pray for the leaders of that city. I want you to pray for the leaders of that province, and I even want you to pray for the emperor, for the king, and all who are in authority. That's a stretch for a lot of us. 
But if God can help them pray for Nero, I guess God can be at work in us. In fact, I think a helpful pattern that Jesus laid out for us from Matthew, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, we're just going to show you kind of how that falls out into the same kind of different kinds of prayer that, um, that Paul talks about here. Uh, praise, prayers of praise for who God is and for what he's done, our Father who art in heaven. It begins with praise. And then repenting of sins I've committed and commands I've neglected. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then ask, P-R-A, ask for the needs of others and our needs, intercession needs supplications that we have, and then why yielding to God's will, my agenda to God's agenda for me, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Just having a kind of a prayer you know, acrostic sometimes helps us to know, well, how do I pray? Paul heaps all these things, not, not so much to break them apart or distinguish them, but to say, keep on praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people at all times. In fact, he makes a special note, interestingly enough, in verse 8, and this sometimes makes us guys squirm, when he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands, which is one of the common prayer postures of, of that day, without anger or quarreling. He basically says, guys, I want you to lead in prayer, in your church, in your homes. Uh, don't wait for your godly sweetheart to take the lead. Uh, go for it. So it's interesting that Paul mentions that at this point. So we have then the, the priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, the scope of prayer, and now the reasons for prayer. And he gives two of them in this passage. First for believers, verses 2 and 3, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and holiness. And that, re- that goes back to 1.5, where he talks about the aim of his ministry was that we would have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Basically, by the quality of the life of a Christian, Many people will find the gospel attractive, and they'll say, I don't know what's different about you, but I, I need to know more. So he says, let's pray for believers that our, the way we live will reflect positively on the gospel we share with others. And it's not a, a call to pray so we can get out of trouble. In fact, Paul writes it very clearly in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So this is not a God get us out of trouble card. This is God help us in the midst of that to live such quality lives by the grace you give us that it bears a significant witness to the second group of people we're to focus on and pray for, and that is for unbelievers, that they may come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved, as Paul writes. This is good and pleases God our Savior. In other words, pray for our friends who don't yet know Jesus. Make that a priority. One of the things I found around the church here, and I keep asking, you know, when did we start doing this, was out in the welcome kiosk, there's a little card that says, invest and invite. And on the back of it, it lists, it has three lines. It says, the following is a list of three people I am attempting to invest in and pray for to invite to Crossroads. I will pray daily for them, share my witness, and invite them, and then it gives you a spot. Uh, I think this is a great idea. Over the years, Gloria and I have found that if we have some specific people by name that we're praying for, it's amazing how often we have to update that list because somebody found Jesus. And it's almost like we are primed and ready when the opportunity comes to share more freely and more effectively. So pray for believers, 
Pray for unbelievers. Prayer must be a priority and a continual practice in every aspect of the local church. If you start attending a church and you find prayer is somehow secondary, peripheral, not that important, you need to find someplace else. Okay? A second characteristic of a healthy church is found in verses 4 through 7. And please take a look there because this is important. A healthy church emphasizes that we communicate with clarity about God and Christ's work in the gospel message. Paul gets very, very clear. when he's, It's more than just belief in God. He says, we believe in the work of Christ. It's a powerful teaching that Paul gives, and it begins by reminding us that God has a heart for everyone. God wants all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Not opinion, but the truth. Verse 4. He wants to be accepted as the God and Savior of all people. Ezekiel 33 reminds us, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that what? That any should perish. You know, I often get accused, how can God send people to hell? He doesn't. We send ourselves there with God weeping. He gave his only son on the cross. He did everything that was needed to provide the antidote and the solution for our sin problem. And we basically said, no thanks. It's like someone in the 1950s uh, walking around in America and Jonas Salk comes around with the polio vaccine and they say, no thanks. And the guy's saying, you've got to take this. This is, a dead, this is a disease that could harm you. And we basically say, no thanks. So God wants everyone to be saved, but he wants us to come on his terms. You know, somebody has once said, we come to God's heaven on God's terms, not our own. This is not a multiple choice thing. This is one way through Jesus available to everybody. So there's God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the truth. There's only one true God that reflects the consistent witness of the Bible from the ancient Hebrew uh, confession of faith, the great Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Or Jeremiah 10, the Lord is, there is one true God, the living God and the everlasting King, he says in Jeremiah 10, 10. Or, or in first, in just earlier in, in chapter 1, verse 17, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. So we're not talking about Allah, we're not talking about all these other things that claim to be God. We're talking about the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one way to come into a relationship with him. And that's been so helpful when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except, what, through me. Or, or Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But it's available to everyone. And yet we consistently forget that he provided the ransom, the purchase price, to purchase us out of sin and bondage, spiritual bondage to Satan. And he says, I'm going to provide the way. That's why I appreciate over the years the navigators came out with a little tool called the bridge illustration. Any of you have seen that? In one of the gospel tracts I had, uh, step three and four is very helpful in illustrating that point. You have sinful people on one side. Christ has provided a way. He is the mediator. He is the bridge to a holy God. Standing on that side, you can look at that bridge all you want, but it doesn't save you. That knowledge is not enough. You have to say, I need to cross the bridge. I need to turn from my sin. I need to put faith in the bridge in Jesus and what he did on the cross for me 
to be right with God. And then that next step means then there is a response. And the question that everyone in this room and beyond needs to answer is, where are you? Have you crossed the bridge that Jesus provided, the one mediator available to all, but only through him, to find life in him? And our response is critical. Why? Because in our own natural state, we are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. We are spiritually blind and without God's help. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 tells us that the God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers. Have you ever had this experience where you're sharing the good news of Jesus and it's like you're speaking Japanese? And they're looking at you like, I don't get it. That's, that's interference in the spiritual realm. And we just have to pray through that. That's why prayer is critical. And we have to understand that it's only through Jesus that we're released from Satan's domain and transferred, as MJ read earlier in Colossians 1, into the kingdom of his dear son. So Paul notes that it, it, happens, it happened at the right time of history. He talks about this happened at the right time there's one God and one mediator who gave his son for us. And he talks about the testimony given at the proper time. Galatians 4.4 reminds us that Jesus Christ came at just the right time in history. And, and even, the, even the historians say, how remarkable that he came during the Roman era where there were the Roman roads and there was all this going on that made it easy for the gospel to get out. Just imagine what it would have been like if he had come today with cell phones and all the technology. I'm not sure it would have been any more effective. We'd seem to have so many more distractions. So it's important to recognize that Jesus came as the ransom. We've been purchased. And that's why Paul was very, very committed to clearly proclaiming the gospel. That was his passion in life. And he declares that passion as, and he says, I'm a herald. I'm like the old guy in the old days. He used to go out into the square and say, at nine o'clock and all is well. There are no proclamations from the king. You know, that's a herald. All he does is yell and proclaim. Sometimes preachers resemble that. He was an apostle, a sent messenger of the gospel commissioned by Jesus Christ on that Damascus road in Acts 9, and he never got over it. He just kept on going. He was a faithful teacher of the gospel. He knew his field was to reach Gentile Christians, and I'm glad he did because I'm a Gentile. And so are most of you, and we're grateful that he did that. Why is it important that we insist on clarity in the gospel in these days? It's because there are two great challenges that continue to plague us in these days. One is called pluralism, where that assertion that no one religion is right or true, and that all religions are equally valid ways to know God, and, and, and they are, it is intolerant to any one true faith. The bottom line is, that's not true. We can be respectful of other people of other faiths. We're not to mistreat them in any way. But we cannot say Christianity is the same as their faith. It's not. And, and Paul makes that very clear. The other thing that this passage oftentimes leads people to assume is universalism. Because he talks about God wants everyone to be saved. Well, then maybe everybody is. The assertion that everyone will be saved regardless of their response to the gospel of Christ. But... Other scriptures make it clear that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for all people to be saved, but effective only for those who in faith repent of their sin and believe in what Jesus did on the cross on their behalf as their substitute. He paid the penalty that I 
needed to pay and couldn't pay. And he's the one that makes me acceptable to God. So clarity in communicating the gospel message is critical to helping people understand and respond appropriately to the invitation of Christ to believe the gospel. So the, one of the clear marks of a healthy church is that they are clear on the communication and the essentials of the gospel. It's not just, well, we believe in God and we're going to hopefully do good works. It is a message that I, right now is very countercultural and very offensive to some folks. But all we do is faithfully reflect the words of Jesus. And I tell people, you don't like what I said? Take it up with Jesus. He's the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that said, you know, there's no other way under heaven but, but by me. And so that's, that becomes the issue. And so Paul's word here is timely for our day. And I think I want to just wrap it up with these, these key applications. Consider the place and priority of prayer in your daily life. Broaden your prayer focus to include everyone. You're going to need a bigger notebook or prayer list. Okay? Everyone and everything that concerns us, including our leaders and unsaved family members, classmates, and friends. And secondly, don't shy away from the exclusive claims of Jesus. There's one God, one Savior, open for everyone who is willing to turn and for their life to be given to Jesus. So never forget that God desires everyone to be saved, so keep praying for those unsafe families and members this friend. So this week, here's your assignment. First, here's the tough one. If you hear or see one of our leaders, government leaders on radio or TV, pray for them that they might lead our local, state, and national governments well and honorably. I, that was tough for them, praying for Nero. It may be tough for you, but we can pray that God would direct the king's heart in the way it should go. Secondly, pray for your unsafe family and family uh, friends and family members to believe the truth about Jesus. It's not just about belief in God. Get, this, get to the specifics so you know what they have come to believe in. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in the gospel message. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, you must respond. Thirdly, the next time someone tells you there are many ways to God, ask them the basis or reason for their viewpoint. A lot of times they have no idea. They just kind of parrot what everyone else is saying. I remember a few weeks ago, uh, Roger Crinock gave us that wonderful bumper sticker uh, about coexisting. I respond, don't coexist, witness. Lift up Jesus and say, well, that's a nice point of view, except it doesn't hold water with what Jesus said. Would you like to hear more? Now, they may say, I'm not interested. That kind of is kind of like a person going through an orchard looking for ripe fruit to just kind of fall. If they're resisting you, you've got to say, okay, Lord, keep working. I'm not going to pluck that one. It's time to move on and look for others who are ready to respond to the gospel. And I would just add, for many of us who are unsure or unprepared to share our faith with others, one of the things we might want to take advantage of is resources that are here at our church. Uh, every week in the back of the worship center and in the visitor and in the uh, welcome center is this little book called Knowing God Personally. And interestingly enough, the basic part of it is the bridge illustration. It, it hits the basics of the gospel very, very quickly and clearly. Great tool. The other thing I would suggest is that in two weeks, that conversations class that Jason mentioned earlier, if you're saying, well, evangelism isn't my gift, and I understand that, but we're all called to be a witness, and maybe I could use some refresher. This, this I think it's a four-week class. It's excellent. 
uh, put on by our Gideon representatives in the area and several people of our church who have a concern to see us be fruitful witnesses for Jesus. Well, Paul's given us a lot to think about today. The priority of prayer in our lives and in our church and the clarity of the gospel that needs to be communicated to others, even though it may offend some, but it is the life-giving truth that leads people to salvation through Jesus. And the interesting thing is, God didn't commission angels to bring this message out to the world. He commissioned people like you and I, and that's, that's the thing that just baffles me the most. Lord, don't you know I'm kind of tongue-tied at times, and, and I'm not really good at this? And the God says, let me work through you and experience the joy of being used in a wonderful way to help people find life in Jesus. If you've never experienced that, it's time to get with the program and know the joy of seeing God use you as his children to make an eternal impact in the lives of others. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you that you didn't want any of us to perish we're so grateful that probably through the prayers of somebody, we found life in Jesus too. And we are eternally grateful. So we invite you by your Holy Spirit to continue your faithful work in and through us to make a difference right where we are and through our prayers all around the world for the glory of your great name, for the advancement of the good news of Jesus, which truly is wonderful news. So Lord, whether we're young or old, we too can bear a witness. We can be a herald. We can shout what we know and let God sort the rest of it out. And he will. So use us, help us even now in these moments to pray for those that you might want us to share with in these days. Lord, you are our God. We rejoice in that. Help us to worship you and live for you in these challenging days. In Jesus' name, amen.